All right. Welcome to church. Thank you for coming this evening. Um, if you didn't notice, uh, we didn't play Good Good Father. Uh, that was on purpose because even though today's Father's Day, I thought it would be cheesy if we played that song. So if you were hoping for Good Good Father tonight and it didn't happen, my apologies. So uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads here and watching, um, and that also includes dads soon-to-be, so uh, happy Father's Day to you guys. Um, God has truly given us a tremendous honor and responsibility. Um, Our responsibility as dads is not simply to provide for the financial needs of our families, um, our, our responsibility is not simply to just work, pay the bills, put food on the table, put a roof over our family's heads. That is just the bare minimum. And sadly, that's where so many fathers and husbands stop. I mean, some don't even get that far, but too many men stop simply at just being a provider and protector thinking that if they do that, they have done all that is required. But God has called us to so much more than that. In Ephesians chapter 5, we learn that we're commanded to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. And specifically in that passage, he talks about sacrificing himself for her, giving himself up for her, washing her with the word. And so we are called to humbly lead by humbly serving our families every single day, by being a gracious partner in every area of life, by doing our equal part to care for the home that God has provided for us, investing into our children's lives, teaching them what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're we're called to be the pastors of our homes, the spiritual leader. And practically, what does that look like? Well, there's a simple statement that I have been trying to teach my son. Uh, You see, he and I are the only boys in our house. Right now, we have Allison and Marisol and soon-to-be Juliana. And uh, both of our dogs are even girls. So Eli and I are the only dudes in the house. Um, So he and I have kind of a special connection in that way. And here's what I am trying to teach him. Eli, I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Oh, no, he says. What do Velilla men do? Bingo. He said, they serve. Velilla men serve. And why do we serve? (laughs) He forgot. That's all right. We serve because when we serve, that is when we are most like Christ. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then, that is how we ought to view our place in the home, as servants of all. But far too often, it is our pride that prevents us from doing that. Today, we're continuing in our series, Why Is This Even In Here? Understanding Your Weird Bible. As we talked about last week, there's a lot of places in the Bible that are flat out weird, places that are odd, places that are strange, difficult to understand. They seem pointless and out of place. Also, 
we talked about there are places in the Bible that are boring, even though it might be sacrilegious seemingly to admit that. It seems boring when we read certain passages. Um, A few years ago, I read an article online entitled, The Six Most Boring Passages of the Bible and Why You Should Avoid Them. It was a riveting article, as you can imagine. The author pointed out in this article that some wise preachers have realized that boring passages and boring sermons hurt their market share. So, if they want to get people more engaged in the Bible, they should stick to the interesting stuff and avoid the boring stuff. So, since I'm a terrible pastor that doesn't care about you, I would like to focus on the boring stuff. Uh, Let me share with you uh, his list of the most boring places in the Bible. Place number one. What's that? (laughs) The book of Numbers, yes. Though there is some very interesting stuff in that book. Uh, Number one in the list is the Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11, which he calls genealogies of people you'll never meet and couldn't care less about. Uh, Passage number two is setting up the tabernacle in Exodus 40, which he calls Moses puts up a tent. And of course, in this passage, um, great detail is given to the, the most minute things that don't seem to matter. Passage number three, burnt offerings, Leviticus 1 through 10, because the Lord wants to smell burning animals. And of course, much detail is given about the sacrificial system in these verses. Number four, curses for disobedience, Deuteronomy 28, which the author calls, before hell was invented, curses were God's way of ensuring goods, uh, good behavior. And so we ought to avoid uh, these places. Number five, historical records from Adam to Abraham. First Chronicles 1 through 9, which he calls, It's like hearing stories about people you've never heard of, but without the stories. So this is the second place in this list where he uh, puts a genealogy. And then finally, the new temple, Ezekiel 40 through 43. Now you can build your own temple without the benefit of blueprints in very exact detail. So quoting from the article, he says this, Left for for theologians to discuss is the age-old question of why God felt it necessary to include these insufferably long, repetitive, spiritually bereft verses in a book that many believe is the actual word of God. They say God works in mysterious ways, and evidently he works in mind-numbingly tedious and uninspiring ways as well. It doesn't seem to hurt Bible sales too much, though you do have to wonder how much more popular the Bible would be if God had deleted these chapters and focused on penning something practical or giving solutions to -to day-to-day problems that people face, like reliable nutrition information, disease prevention strategies, or detailed instruction on how to build your own bicycle. Anything but the boring passages listed in the article. Most of us, I think, would agree that on the surface, these passages do seem boring. We might ask why God would include them in the first place. We might say, why is this even in here? It's a great question. One that, unfortunately, many Christians cannot answer. Truthfully, many Christians can't answer why most things are in the Bible. But 
as I said before, in this series, we're going to try to answer burning questions just like that. So today, in honor of Father's Day, we are going to take a look at why God put genealogies in the Bible. A long list of dads with very few stories attached. And we're going to use one particular story um, in Scripture to frame the importance of genealogies. And this is absolutely not an exhaustive list of reasons why genealogies are significant. Um, But hopefully this will shed some light uh, as it scratches the surface of why genealogies are spiritually significant. That they are not spiritually bereft verses. Um, the article of the author, uh, uh, the author of the article, <laughs> again said that these were stories of people that you'll never meet and could care less about. But today we are going to meet one character in particular, and you'll learn why you should care very much about his life, so that you are not doomed to repeat his mistakes. So. Let's start with the boring stuff, shall we? Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, and if you remember, this passage was the first passage listed in the article uh, that I referenced. Um, The table of nations descended from Noah. So, um, as interestingly as possible, I will read this passage. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havala, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtaka, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth Ur. Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, loves those names with the Im, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam. Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. 
The name of one was Peleg, for in his, name, in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jarah, Hadram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Ab, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Meshah in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. I barely made it through that. Uh, Everyone still awake? Good? Didn't bore you to death yet? Awesome. Um, So, on the surface, once again, this seems like, why is this even in here? Okay, this is among the most boring things I have ever read. This is essentially reading an ancient phone book. So what's the point? Why did God put this in here to begin with? So let's begin by reviewing the four um, essential um, rules for scriptural interpretation that we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about four essential principles for interpreting scripture. Does anyone remember what any of them were before they're on the screen? Anyone? Any of the four? Good. I'm glad. So, you can go ahead and put them up, Josh. Uh, these are the four essential principles for scriptural interpretation. And we're going to go over these in every single message in this series. Hopefully, by the end, uh, these will be tools that you can put in your scriptural tool bag to, to help understand scripture. Number one, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. So we have to understand that every single passage of scripture was written by an ancient author to an ancient audience at an ancient time. And it had a meaning in that particular time and place to those particular time and people. So before we can extract the eternal truth from a passage, we first have to understand its original context to its original audience. Once we have that meaning, then we can build upon it what God has for us. But we can't read scripture as if it was written yesterday. We have to read it as it was originally intended to the original audience. And then take the eternal truth from that. Number two, that we have to note the difference between description and prescription. Description is passages in the Bible that tell you about something. That record an event. That say, this took place. But that is not the same as prescription, which is to say, go and do likewise. Now, there are passages that do both, but not every passage that is descriptive is also prescriptive. And sometimes a skeptic of the word will look at a particular passage and say, how could God be okay with this? And the answer is, he's not. He recorded that it happened, but he's not endorsing it. So just because something is recorded in scripture doesn't necessarily mean it's recommended in scripture. So we have to note the difference between the two. Number three, genre matters. So included in the various genres of scripture, we have things like poetry, history, law, narrative, personal letters. And we have to read each one of these in a literary way as as they are intended. 
Obviously, we can't read poetry the same way that we would read narrative. Poetry uses flowery, often exaggerated language in order to drive home a point. Heavy uses of things like hyperbole. So we can't take that same passage in the same way that we would take a narrative, which is to say, this is what literally happened. So we have to remember the genre as we read a text. And finally, number four, scripture interprets scripture. With every passage that we read, it is within the context of every other passage in the Bible. And when we're trying to understand what it means, we have to place it in the context of the rest of the story. So, today, we're going to use principles number one, number three, and number four. The Bible must be read as an ancient document, genre matters, and scripture interprets scripture. So, let's put it in ancient context as we look at this dull, boring genealogy. Like every other passage, we can't remove it from its original context. We can't rip it out of its address. This particular passage, along with the rest of the first five books of the Old Testament, was written by Moses during the 40 years that the Israelites were wandering in the desert. In this particular period of time, we know that Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting, uh, and it says that he would meet with God face to face as with a friend. And so God, during this time, is handing down direct revelation to Moses on a regular basis. This was happening all the time, Moses going into the tent of meeting. And so Moses has this information straight from God uh, that's contained in the first five books of the Bible. And God is giving Moses this revelation to give to the people as they are wandering. They've just come out of Egypt where they've been in slavery for hundreds of years. And as God brings them out and is going to send them into the promised land, he's establishing their identity. He's helping them to learn who they are, where they came from, and where they're going. He's setting their eyes forward to look at the Messiah that is to come. So, this genealogy plays a part in accomplishing that goal for the Israelites to help them understand who they are, where they are heading. And as it turns out, this genealogy in Genesis chapter 10 has some real gold in it. Uh, Now, the people, of course, would have cared about every name on this list. And uh, we'll talk more about that idea a little bit later. But today we're going to focus on one name in particular in this genealogy. And perhaps uh, we'll look at this in a way that you've never looked at it before. So in order to do that, let's now turn to the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 11. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 in a story that I'm sure you have all heard before. The story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, 
and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will, be, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So, again, this is a story that we've probably all heard many, many times. Um, If you are old enough to have done flannel graph in Sunday school, you probably had a Tower of Babel flannel graph that you put together at some point. But today, we're going to look at this from a bit of a different angle. Specifically, we're going to look at this story from the perspective of the architect, of the Tower of Babel, the man in charge of building this tower and the surrounding city. This story, in a historical setting, takes place between one and three hundred years after the flood. Somewhere in that range, though it's uh, hard to tell for certain. Noah and his children have repopulated the earth after the flood in a similar way that Adam and Eve uh, populated the earth. And using um, some tools like um, average lifespans, population growth rates, average family sizes, and generation numbers, at this point in history, estimates uh, put the population on earth somewhere between 300,000 and a million people. So there's uh, hundreds of thousands of people that are on the earth at this point. We learn from another genealogy that Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So uh, this is another story for another time, but it's interesting to note that the fact uh, of the lives of Adam and Noah nearly overlapped. We view them as being so far apart in history, but Adam and Noah had lives that were very, very close to each other within one generation. And if we do the math from the genealogies that are provided in Genesis, which is another reason why genealogies are important, we would learn that the events of the Tower of Babel actually take place during the latter part of Noah's life. So Noah was still alive during this event. And I'm sure, since later on in Scripture we hear him described as a preacher of righteousness, I'm sure that Noah opposed the Tower of Babel. So as the population is growing and starting to move further away from the mountains of Ararat, where God gives Noah the same command that he gave Adam and Eve, which was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image, These people are beginning to spread out little by little. Verse 2 tells us that the people had begun to migrate from the east. But then we find them doing something that goes directly against the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. It says they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Uh, This is modern day Iraq. And they settle there, which is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But the end of verse 4 tells us their motivation for settling in this particular place. It says, Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
So, just on the surface there, we find one of the reasons why they established Babel. It is because they were being disobedient to the command of God to disperse over the earth. They're disobeying that command. Instead of filling the earth, they want to stay put in their own place. So, uh, a first note of thought here is that the builders of the tower were disobeying God's command to fill the earth. We see another part of their motivation in the second part of verse 4 where it says, Come and let us make a name for ourselves. That idea of making a name for themselves is one that we'll come back to. So I'll move on. The next thing that we see here is that the builders of the Tower of Babel and the city surrounding it want to live for their own glory. They are building their own kingdom. They're not working for God's kingdom. They're working for their own. So not only did they disobey the command of God to spread across the earth, it seems from this verse that another part of their motivation um, in building the tower was for establishing their own glory. They no longer uh, lived to lift God's name high. They no longer wanted to make his name known. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The word Babel means gate of God. So in essence, they are saying, we don't need God. We can build our own gate to the gods. Like every single one of us today, these people had a desire for security and safety, to be a part of something greater than themselves. And, and those are good desires. It's good to desire security. It's good to desire safety. It's good to desire to be a part of something great. But when those desires become idols in our lives, that becomes a huge problem. Rather than finding our security in the Lord, so often we find it in how much money's in our bank account. Rather than finding our security in his protection, we make an idol out of insurance policies or concealed carry. And I'm a fan of both of those things, but again, anything can be an idol. Rather than, our, uh, than meeting our desire for greatness in the Great Commission, we try to find greatness in whatever our own pursuits might be. And so we see in these things that we have a lot in common with the, um, uh, the, the builders of the Tower of Babel. They're not just innocently trying to build a huge building. They are constructing an idol of self-worship. They're saying, see what we can do on our own. Look at what we can do without God. And God opposed that tower. He opposed that project because of what they were building in their hearts. So this is the the overview, the, the, the group. Now let's zoom in. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the text to see something that perhaps you've never seen before. That this story is not just a story about a group of people that were chasing after these things. This story is about a man who is obsessed with his own glory. A man who is obsessed with his own name. So, now let's begin to connect the dots between chapter 11 and chapter 10 where we'll start to see the importance of this dull, uninspiring list of names. There's at least one golden nugget uh, for us in that chapter that I think completely changes the tone of the story of the Tower of Babel. 
In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, we find the name of the man responsible for the tower. His name was Nimrod. So let's look once more at Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, the great city. So here we have Nimrod, who is described for us as being a powerful hunter, a mighty man, a city builder. For some reason, I don't know what the etymology of this was, uh, but perhaps when you were a kid, you used the word Nimrod as an insult. Uh, perhaps like me, uh, trying to be goofy, you would say to a friend, stop being such a Nimrod. Well, these people would not have used his name in that way at all. They would have used it in a heroic way, like it mentions in verse 9. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. To call someone a Nimrod was to uh, call them something very powerful. He was obviously industrious. He was creative, intelligent, incredibly gifted. But he was also obsessed with his own glory. If we rewind a little bit further, let's go into chapter 9, and we'll find a, a kind of an odd scene that sheds a little bit more light here. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on um, both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servant shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So, um, I won't spend a lot of time on this story, but basically what happens is Canaan, instead of honoring his father, instead of taking care of his dad, he sees that his dad has gotten drunk and is lying naked in his tent, and he goes out, and instead of doing something about it, he rats him out. He says to his brothers, ha, dad, he's in the tent, and he's acting like a fool. Well, in an act to honor their father and protect his reputation, the other two sons take a blanket, walk backwards into the tent, and cover him up. So when Noah uh, realizes what's taken place, he hands down a generational blessing and a generational curse. To Canaan, he says, the generational curse shall be yours. To Shem and Japheth, he says, you will be blessed and Canaan will serve you. So, because of how Noah is belittled and shamed by Ham and, the, uh, and his descendants, they are now cursed by Noah. 
Specifically, it says that they are to be servants of servants to the descendants of their brothers. So all of the descendants of Ham are given this curse. You will be servants to your brothers. And who was one of those descendants? Nimrod. So if you're taking notes, finally, here is point number one. The Tower of Babel is a story about a man focused only on his own name and kingdom. See, Nimrod grows up hearing about this generational curse. And he is determined to spend his life proving God, Noah, and everyone else wrong. His perspective is one that says, I will not be a servant. I will make a name for myself. Here's what gets even more specific when we look at the original language. In chapter 9, verse 26, where it says, um, God says, blessed be Shem, and let Canaan, Ham's son, be his servant. It's interesting to note that the meaning of Shem's name is great name. So Shem literally means great name. So in this verse, God is literally saying, blessed be the Lord, the God of the great name, and let Canaan serve the great name. So God says to all of this line of descendants, you will serve the great name. And Nimrod says, no, I will make a great name for myself. I will do whatever it takes to make my own name great. So we find here in this pointless genealogy that Nimrod spends his entire life in this pursuit. You see, Babel was only the first city that Nimrod built. He built a total of eight great cities. They, again, are named here. Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, Rezin, Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, um, Assyria. All of these are cities that uh, Nimrod built. See, after Bethel, he didn't stop. His obsession continued. He didn't get the hint after God struck down the first project. He just tried harder. And he kept building more and more cities. He spent his entire life trying to prove that he could be strong enough to reverse the curse on his own. I'll build another city. I'll build another tower. I'll build another one and another one. And he keeps going and going and going. Now remember, the entire Bible is connected. It is all one story in which every piece of the story supports the rest of the story. And here in Nimrod, we find something very similar to Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve sinned, and then they realized that they were naked. And in their shame, they tried to cover their own nakedness. They're handed down the punishment of a curse, Noah sinned and he realized he was naked. Ham belittled and cast shame on his father's nakedness and was cursed. Adam and Eve tried to reverse the curse by their own efforts. And their own efforts were to make themselves loincloths with leaves. Nimrod tries to reverse the curse by his own efforts as well. By building cities and towers and trying to make his name great. But ultimately, it was not the effort of Adam and Eve that saved them. It was blood. But as far as we know, Nimrod lived the rest of his life 
in this vain pursuit. We are not so unlike the builders of Babel, Nimrod himself. Dads, we are especially guilty of being like Nimrod. Like Nimrod, we spend our entire lives building towers and cities, determined to be our own masters and do great things. And all we are left with is a fruitless, frustrating life. God is calling to us in the midst of our vain pursuit and saying to us, that won't make you happy. But we keep pursuing those things anyway. We pursue building our careers, our families, our accomplishments, our own name in the world. And you know what happens every time? fails. It is empty. Every single time we're left unsatisfied. Every time we reach the the finish line, every time we get to the milestone, we're left wanting more. More money, bigger house, nicer car, bigger family, more success, more accomplishments. Every time you reach what you think is the pinnacle, every time you reach what you think is the top of the tower, it's not high enough. We got to build another level. We got to go a little bit higher. Once you become a hundred thousandaire, I'm assuming, you want to become a millionaire. I'll never get there, so I'm assuming this, but the finish line keeps moving. You never arrive. All of this vain pursuit instead of doing the one and only thing that will satisfy, and that is serving the great name. Point number two. God mercifully leaves our kingdoms in ruins. Here's something that I've always found interesting. The Bible doesn't say that God knocked down the tower. And that's kind of how I grew up thinking about it. After all, it does say that the Lord came down to see the city which they'd built. And he says, uh, behold, they're one people and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So God comes down and the action that he performs is not knocking the tower down. The action that he performs is confusing their language and dispersing them because they wouldn't disperse themselves. Interestingly, we're left to assume that he left the tower standing. He leaves that scattered tower in ruins. As a reminder, I believe. A reminder to Nimrod. Nimrod, you remember that? Look at the tower. You need me. Look at the tower. It will remind you that that won't satisfy. Look at the tower and remember the frustration that you don't need to build a gate to God when I have already promised a gate to myself through Christ. Now, how many of us can look at our own lives and see the towers of frustration in shambles? How many of us can examine times in our lives where we tried to build something on our own strength and it stands there as a testament to our failure? But listen, those ruins that stand there is not an act of judgment. Those ruins are an act of mercy 
Because God leaves those towers of frustration in our lives to remind us continually of our need for him. You see, when he frustrated these people, it was not out of pettiness. It was not out of, oh, I just want to stop them because I want to hold them under my thumb. You see, God's desire for us is to pursue his heart because he knows that is the only thing that will satisfy. And so he will purposely frustrate any effort that we have to try to find satisfaction in something other than him. God frustrated them in order to save them. He dispersed them as an act of, of mercy. And so when we look at our own lives, at all of the the failed relationships, the trophies that sit in our trophy case gathering dust, the possessions and accomplishments that we thought would make us happy and yet didn't, God leaves those things there as a reminder that we need those things, uh, that we don't need those things, but rather we need him in order to satisfy us. One of the other things I find interesting in this passage is that God continued to let Nimrod build cities. Yes, he frustrated the efforts at Babel. Yes, he confused the languages. But even after God frustrated him at Babel, Nimrod kept going. One more city, then I'll be happy. Then my name will be enough. And it didn't work. So he built another city. And God kept saying to him, serve me, Nimrod. Serve the great name, and then you will be happy. But Nimrod kept building. But here's what we know for sure. What we know for sure is that God never gave up on Nimrod. He never gave up on his descendants. We know for sure that God continued to pursue him and continued to pursue his descendants, loving them and reaching out to them with his grace. Do you know how we know that? The genealogy tells us. In fact, there is an entire book written about how God's grace continued to extend to Nimrod. Here's point number three. God's grace never stops pursuing us. Look at one of the verses, uh, look at one of the cities that is mentioned in verse 11. It says, From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Nineveh. This is one of the cities of Nimrod. Generations later, God would prove that he has never given up on Nimrod or his descendants by sending a prophet in the mouth of a great fish to tell them to accept the gospel of grace and to repent. The beautiful truth that we have is that God never gives up on us either. No matter how many towers or cities we build, no matter how hard we set about on our own goals, obsessed with building our own names and our own happiness, God continues to frustrate city after city, tower after tower, all to bring us back to him, all to rescue us from vain pursuits that will never satisfy, all to lead us straight back to Jesus. From the line of Shem, the great name, come the people of God and Jesus himself. From the line of Ham come those who would continue to fight against the great name, refusing to serve it. And the rest of the Old Testament deals 
with Israel and its conflict with the inhabitants of Canaan. We got to stop the madness. We have to give ourselves completely to Jesus. Or, like Nimrod, we will live our lives in obsessed frustration. Only Jesus can satisfy. Finally, here's point number four. These genealogies show us the depth of God's intimate love. This final point is not just about this genealogy, but about all of them. Uh, There are many genealogies, many lists of names that are recorded in Scripture. And these lists of names reveal to us the character of a God who deeply cares about every single life. It tells the story of a God who is intimately involved. A God who doesn't just see a people. He sees people. And while the names might not mean much to us, they mean a whole lot to God. There are some places in the Bible where there are a list of names that appear twice. In a limited amount of space in the Holy Scriptures, God recorded their names twice. Think those people aren't important to him? Have you ever walked through a graveyard and read the names of tombstones? All you see on that tombstone is a name and a set of numbers with a dash in between. But you know full well as you walk that creepy ground... That every single one of those names is connected to the life of a real person who did real things, who experienced life in real ways, who had accomplishments and failures and relationships. And you may not know their stories, you may only know the name that is written, but God knows every single story. Back in 2004, a band called Cutlass wrote a song called Sea of Faces. And the chorus says, I am not just a man Lost in this world, lost in a sea of faces. Your body is the bread, your blood is the wine, because you traded your life for mine. Just one in a million faces. Insert your own name into this incredibly boring list. Because one day, unless Jesus comes back before then, every single one of us is going to be a name and a number on a stone. But that doesn't mean that you didn't matter. Because you serve a God who knows your name. And more importantly, you serve a God who gives you his name. The great name. There are people that spend years digging through genealogies to find identity. Searching through hundreds, even thousands of years of names. Digging for belonging. All the while missing the fact that all they need is one name. One name in order to get those names things. In the Bible, there are recorded 3,237 names, every single one of them showing a God who intimately cares. But every single one of those names are recorded in the grand scheme of a larger story that is all about one name. That name is Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. God has given us his great name and has given us purpose in this life 
to see more names added to the list of names recorded in the Lamb's book of life. What are we doing to find ourselves in him and to bring more people into the family of God before we are all lost to history and are just names on Ancestry.com? Let us build for the gospel, not build towers. And let us live for the one who gave his name to us, serving his great name, not ours. I'd say that's not bad for a pointless, spiritually bereft, boring genealogy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, for truth. Thank you for showing us, Lord, that even in obscure passages, there is so much meaning. God, I pray that you would help every single one of us to lay down the vain projects, the towers of Babel that we are constructing in our lives. God, I pray that if there's anybody listening tonight, here or online, that knows that there are things that they're pursuing for their own glory or their own kingdom or or trying to find satisfaction or meaning in, Lord, I pray that you would convict. Lord, I pray that you would call people to yourself. God, I pray that you would humble us, help us to realize these ways in which we pursue ourselves instead of you. And God, I pray that you would help us to lay those things down to serve the great name. God, I pray if there's anyone who has never given their lives to Jesus, Lord, let tonight be the night that you would call them to yourself. God, as we uh, sing this final song to you, as, as we cry out to you, our Father who loves us, We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your grace. And may our hearts now respond to that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Josh will play our closing song. And during this time, if you'd like to come and find me and and ask for prayer or, or talk about anything else, please do.